but you know, if I know Canadian and British farmers, we have a we are resilient. We have a can-do attitude to this, and and I think we can meet these challenges. But we're going to need the right political backdrop. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, the weather has the last laugh, does it not? Hi, everyone. It is my pleasure to welcome you to season two of Fireside Chats with Aaron. I'm your host, Aaron Garaluk. I'm going to start off by thanking everyone listening and watching for your support of our podcast. What started as a labor of love and a place for conversations with industry influencers has really evolved into a platform for big ideas and one of Canada's top ag policy podcasts. And for that, I'm very grateful. I'm normally coming to you from the fireside, a place I would very much like to be given the frigid temperatures here in the nation's capital. But like many of my fellow parents, I find myself squirreled away in a quiet corner of my house away from children and dogs who are also at home, the children attending school virtually as we find ourselves under yet another set of COVID-related lockdowns. But the conversation continues. After all, it was this pandemic that inspired these virtual conversations. And today we're going to continue the commitment that we made at the start of season two, and that is to look at other jurisdictions for inspiration. We cross the Atlantic for a conversation with a UK farmer who has provided sector leadership as the deputy president of the National Farmers Union. Guy Smith served for eight years on the NFU Council as the Essex delegate. He's a Nuffold scholar and serves on the board of directors with the National Institute of Agricultural Botany. Guy is a fellow of the Royal Agricultural Society and a recipient of an honorary doctorate for services to agriculture from Essex University. Guy, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. Erin, thank you. Uh, and, and always a pleasure uh, to speak to someone uh, from, from Canada. And a belated uh, Happy New Year uh, to you and your, your listeners and your excellent podcast. And hey, 2022, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, with that, Happy New Year to you, to you as well. I, I got in touch with you and you and I had an opportunity to connect briefly before before the show as well, because one of my directors met you when she was overseas. I think it was for the Oxford Farming Conference a few years ago, back when we were having, you know, face-to-face conferences and meetings. And sure. he came back and to it, me. It was nice to see Alison. And uh, I sort of knew Alison by good old Twitter. Uh, and uh, as I, thought, I always like to keep an eye on what's going on in Canada, because it has this special place in my heart. My, my grandfather, who was born more or less where I sit now, uh, as a 19-year-old, he went out and took a, a quarter section of raw prairie in Saskatchewan. Uh, and uh, to say he must have had a raw, tough uh, time when he was just a young lad in Canadian winters in makeshift cabins uh, living off prairie turkey, it's its a heck of a story. And whenever I feel a little bit uh, challenged about life or things aren't going right, I just think of my grandfather out on that Canadian prairie and realise, hey, my problems don't Thank you for for that for that Canadian connection. Yes, I can relate somewhat to that, given some of the harsh uh, weather that we've had across the prairies. Now moving into eastern Canada this winter, it has been a bitter cold winter for many of our listeners across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. As I mentioned at the at the top during uh, my introduction, you served as the deputy president of the UK National Farmers Union, and it was during your tenure the organization made a, a pretty bold commitment, I think that was in, in 2019, and that was to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions 
for the whole of agriculture in England and Wales by, by 2040. Why did the union and its members feel it was important to support the UK government's commitment to reach that target by 2050? And, and why did you feel you could do that 10 years sooner? I think the office holders, the President Manette Batters and myself, we felt that possibly the conversation was slipping away from us uh, and we needed a better seat in the conversation. We felt that agriculture was being framed as a big part of the problem where we wanted it to become seen as a big part of the solution. So we felt that if we tried to seize the moral high ground uh, by saying we felt we could get to net zero by 2040, then we could take the initiative. And, and politically, I, I know it knew it worked because you could see it in front of your eyes. So every autumn we would go and attend the big political conventions uh, where the, the big beasts of the political scene would, would come up to our stand uh, in the hall and, and talk to us. And if at that moment you put our plan in their hands and you said, look, we think we can do this, but we need the policy framework from you to make it happen. It's as if we were on the front foot and they were sliding, the ball was then in their court. And we felt that that gave us the initiative. You know, climate change is tremendously political and all sorts of agendas, particularly the vegetarian, the vegan agenda now, are trying to seize that agenda for their own advantage. Uh, and we felt that, you know, farming was being unduly blamed, you know, Consumers are being told, just change your diet and that will be your contribution um, to, to, to climate change. And that's palpable nonsense. You know, energy, travel, all these things are much more important. And to, to sort of pressurise consumers uh, all the time, we felt that the agenda was moving away. So we felt with this plan, uh, we were sort of to a certain extent taking back some of the control of the agenda. I appreciate you providing that political perspective because as a National Agriculture Advocacy Association based here in Ottawa in the nation's capital, that's always top of mind for us in terms of how we're relating to and with the current government as it, you know, as it relates to, to our sector's priorities. I'd be curious to know because I'm assuming, you know, all of your members when you when you made this commitment, even before maybe it was made public, um, and you were you were sharing this idea with your members. I'm sure they were all big fans of the idea, and you were met with no opposition whatsoever. Uh, I noticed that wry twinkle in your eye, and and as someone who who also has to show leadership uh, of of a lot of farmers, you know, you know, sometimes you can't always be referring back because you end up just drowning in a morass of different opinions, and you have to take a lead. This is back. Also, you must take people with you, uh, otherwise you lack the credibility of, of your representation. Um, uh, we know that some of our members were wary uh, and concerned that we were overcommitting, and, and I sort of accepted that because I, I, I think they were right that I think if you sort of um, you overstate your ambition, uh, you can become a prisoner of it, uh, and particularly um, when in a, in a global scenario we're putting down targets that maybe our competitors aren't. You've got to be careful you're not in a put yourself in a competitive disadvantage. And of course, the, the fundamental issue for farmers uh, and and climate change is the easiest way to lower your carbon footprint is to shut the farm gate and do nothing. Uh, but obviously, as farm businesses, that, that is not realistic. Um, and I think the fundamental challenge for humanity 
and farmers are central to this, is how do we feed a burgeoning world population of eight, nine billion without further pressurising the planet? And there's a balance between those two. Uh, and the, there aren't easy answers to this, but I think it's imperative for farmers to try and, and grasp the agenda uh, before someone takes it away from them. What did it take in your view then? You talked about bringing some of your members along with you. What, what, what did that process look like? How did you get them to a point where as a union you were comfortable making a public commitment? I think by many farmers felt that we weren't uh, doing enough, particularly on the on the vegan agenda of um, putting a lot of emphasis on on CH4 methane from cows in particular. Uh, and we felt that you know one way you can do this is is to set out your own agenda, be confident of what you think you can do, and then take that as an offer to politicians and to, to the wider public. And so, you know, we were front foot. We weren't always responding to accusations being put against us. And I think the members got that. Uh, and, you know, thousands of them wanted copies of the of the, the, the plan um, so they could take that plan out to their own sort of local uh, politicians and whatever. So it, it, it beefed them up, as it were, in terms of going out there with, with, with proactive ideas and recognising the enormity of the solution. And, you know, farmers have to step up. So I think they got that. I, I think, you know, some were concerned that this would mean we would just be producing less food because, as I said, that's a very easy way to, to lower carbon. And I always put the caveat down that, no, we must do this not by just reducing food production, uh, but by being smart enough to do both lower carbon uh, and maintain food production. And includes three overarching pillars. Can you walk us through those? Sure. So remember, first of all, it's net zero. It's not zero. And a key part of this is an increasing involvement of agriculture in, in renewable energy, uh, whether it's biogas or it's biofuel or, or wind or solar, which often takes place on, on, on farmland. So a key part of this was producing renewable energy so you could displace uh, oil and gas and, and the carbon emitters and so you could offset uh, that that's you know quite an important part of this there's problems there as well which we can go on to but this was a key part of of the, the three-pronged approach which you, you rightly point out the second was just to to get smarter in the way we use uh, inputs particularly fertilizer uh, we felt that with better technology with better plant genetics, then we can better utilise fertiliser use uh, and that will lead to less uh, CO2 in the atmosphere um, and we can maintain production if we deploy the technology in a, in a smarter way. And there are other aspects about the way animals are kept, whereby we felt that you could reduce uh, um, GHG production uh, and yet maintain uh, your, your agricultural production, your food production. And, and then finally, it was sequestration. So a lot of uh, farms in, uh, in the UK, they have hedges around them because we have smaller fields prices than you do, uh, as I know too well in the Canadian prairies. Um, and we felt that simple ideas about letting those hedges grow. So um, you've got more sequestration going on, um, cleverer management of pasture. 
for, for animals, um, utilizing farmland as a carbon sink, um, tillage practices to increase uh, carbon organic matter in the soil. So a three-pronged attack, where, attack whereby we felt that by 2040, you could achieve net zero. But uh, to emphasize again, the net part of this is quite important. Mm-hmm, absolutely. What were the main challenges? In developing a plan which seeks to achieve net zero for the whole of agriculture, there's there's a heap of challenges here, and I, and I don't underestimate them. And now I'm no longer sort of in this political position, I, I probably can be a bit franker about this. Um, I think a fundamental problem is that a lot of the science isn't settled. Um, that there are disagreements between scientists about. I mean, take for instance methane from from cows. The GHG property of CH4 methane. Um, some uh, scientists think that it is it's weighted much higher than others. So it depends on which analysis you take, which scientist you go to. Um, so the fact the science isn't settled is is very confusing. The fact that you get a lot of pressure groups now trying to bring their agenda. Uh, into the climate change uh, um, argument, I think also muddies the water to a certain extent. And I think farmers, um, to bring it back home, back to the farm, uh, and to understand it, you know, you need sort of carbon calculators that you can understand. And I think the last count, there's about 60 or 70 different ones out there which give you different results. Um, I, I think we're even unsure about how we measure organic matter in our soils, which is absolutely fundamental. So I, I think there are a lot of sort of known unknowns out there that we farmers really do need to understand better um, so they can go back home uh, tweak the way they farm uh, and improve their carbon footprint. What, if any, barriers, Guy, have you considered with respect to whether or not the plan can achieve its intended objectives? Well, the, the first thing is is you have to have the right policy framework uh, to support it. You know, the NFU farmers, we can't do this on our own. Um, so we have to remember we're in the wider policy framework. So you have to go to politicians and say, you have a responsibility. Uh, in, 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 well, farmers can't do it on their own. So we need the right policies. And what we didn't know in 2019 is whether carbon would be considered in trade deals. And this, to my mind, is quite important uh, because if you have different agriculturists operating under different um, climate change resolution uh, schemes, um, you may give one agriculture an advantage over the other. And if that's not recognized in a trade deal, which as you know, Britain is now embarking on a heap of new trade deals uh, as we leave the European Union, then you will have a problem, you will have a sort of carbon tension at your import-export nexus um, that could act to the detriment of your of your own farmers. And, and that's intensely, as I'm sure you realise, Erin, you know, trade deals are, are fraught with problems, fraught with deep negotiations and, and doing the best for your own members. But I think we have to have a sort of common understanding of the way carbon is going to be traded uh, or embedded carbon is going to be traded across the world. Guy, you mentioned um, the role, the fact that your plan articulates a role for government. And, and in, in the absence of a similar plan here in Canada, I can say that yeah, as of late, we've seen some policies come from our government that relate to our sector that 
maybe made more sense on paper than they do at the farm gate um, in terms of their practical applications and what we can reasonably achieve with those policies. So I'd be curious to learn more about how you've been working with government in this space and how, how receptive government has been to helping you do the things that you've outlined for them in your plan. You know, you're talking to government, you're always reminded of Eisenhower's famous statement, aren't you, that it's easy to farm when your farm is a sheet of paper and your plough is a pen. Uh, and, and it's those practicalities that, that mess the world of farming up. Um, and there's also another adage that, that climate change always reminds me of, and that is that you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So we need from government clear metrics as to what they recognise as, as carbon reduction. So we can have management plans in that respect. We need government to respect that if they impose, you could say, draconian conditions on their farmers in terms of, um, uh, of carbon, that they have to respect that in the trade deals. Otherwise, you will get a competitive imbalance uh, on, on your imports and exports. And I think though they, these things are the, are the toughest issues that we've had to face you know we need this clarity from government as to what they recognize as carbon reduction we need government to then support those ideas in their policies there in their domestic policies and we need them to respect that in the way they go about negotiating new trade arrangements thank you guy one final question on this i'm going to switch gears to a different topic but you know what best practices can you share on how to position agriculture as part of the solution to climate change so, so for me as a practical farmer, I'm acutely aware that, that as an arable farmer, as a crop farmer, uh, fertilizer use is, is, is quite key to this. Um, I think if we can be more efficient in our fertilizer use, um, then that's a good way we can start to reduce uh, our carbon footprint. And the sequestration uh, of the way more trees on farms in places where it doesn't impact on on production that that, that that's another idea but going back to the fertilizer issue and and 2021 is an interesting place to start discussing fertilizer because as we know we are seeing these huge hikes in prices on fertilizer use and it looks like you know farmers across the world may reduce their fertilizer use which in one analysis in terms of carbon and climate change is a good thing but the danger is that if it's over and we severely deplete the world harvest, we will get problems with, with food supply um, and, and never underestimate the importance of, of full bellies and, and people that go to bed not hungry when it comes to politics. It's, it's a, a key political issue. So I think there's a real issue here for politicians that if they get it wrong, uh, and they address climate change and carbon by suppressing food production, they will end up with a, a, a bigger problem. And I think farmers can see that's a writ large on their farms. And, and fertilizer at the moment is in a really interesting place where we all may be deciding to use a little less fertilizer. And that could be, mean that we have a, 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 another world harvest, which was, which was disappointing in 2021 and may cause all sorts of problems across the globe if we have another reduced harvest in 2022. 
That's a good segue to a question I was going to ask you about about fertilizer. And um, and I think in part you already answered it, but you know, about a year ago, the Canadian government came out with a target to see emissions from nitrogen-based fertilizer reduced by by 30%. And, and, and we believe that there's a similar commitment. And I think in the European Union's farm to fork strategy, they were looking at a, a 20% total reduction in, in the use of, of fertilizer in, in their plan. And to your point, this has left Canadian farmers feeling rightfully concerned about the potential impact that this could have both on production and in turn uh, on profitability. So, you know, we know that farming is becoming increasingly expensive, that profit margins are narrowing, and yet the global population is growing. So are we doing an effective job, in your view, at balancing issues related to farm profitability and food affordability and food availability with policies like this? And in addition to what you've just outlined, is there anything else that you would include in terms of what effective policies like this have to consider when it comes to the broader implications? I think any politician needs to realise that we need resilient food production systems. Uh, And of course, the the irony with climate change is that as the weather becomes more volatile, um, then maybe, you know, the old food production systems become less resilient. And I know, you know, Canada, you had a tough time last year with some very volatile weather, which really uh, suppressed production. We had a similar scenario uh, in little old England uh, in, in 2020. So we have this sort of the, the added dilemma of more volatile weather um, and making food production systems less resilient. So politicians need to be aware of that. So I think support programs may be increasingly uh, important going forward. Um, I think markets are going to become more volatile as harvests become more volatile. So farmers are going to have to manage risk uh, in different or better ways than they have in the past. Um, So, you know, lots of new challenges coming over the hill. Uh, But, you know, if I know Canadian and British farmers, we we are resilient. We have a can-do attitude to this. And, And I think we can meet these challenges. But we're going to need the right political backdrop um and you know at the end of the day the weather has the last laugh does it not in addition to a can-do attitude and as someone who has worked for farmers for a number of years i can attest to that you know what else do you think in your view that we can do together to boost resiliency and better position farmers for success in this new environment i think investments really important um you know in investing in our farms i know in the uk we we probably haven't invested in the infrastructure of our farms as much as we should have um i mean you, you can't change the weather but you can mitigate the impact adverse weather has on your farm drainage is, is a good example irrigation uh, is another good example in, in dry times so i think Having enough profitability in the farm sector to invest back into our farms uh, is, is really important in the face of, of climate change. Um, I think investment in, in genetics, in plant breeding is really important. I mean, hey, look, if we could put uh, a nitrogen-fixing gene into, into cereals, we could cross the, the legumes with the cereals, I mean, that would have a huge impact on, on fertilizer use and carbon. And so, you know, plant breeding technologies, I think, are, are, are the answer. I, I'm a great believer that 
you know, man, we are clever monkeys uh, and technology and engineering are our way out of the, of the big problems we face. Um, but we need every tool in the box. And it slightly concerns me that in the UK, we have a sort of sceptical attitude to, to genetic modification or even um, GE or genetic engineering moving the same genes around to the same plant. And I do hope that we won't find our, our hands tied behind our back because of scepticism about new technologies in food production, which we really do need to take on these, these, these huge problems, you know, this huge issue of how do we feed a burgeoning world population of eight to nine billion without further pressurizing the, the planet. We'll need every tool in the toolbox. Agreed. The Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Crops is currently working right now to develop a voluntary code of practice for the sustainable production of Canadian grain. And, and much like the UK NFU's commitment to net zero, it has been met with mixed reviews from farmers across the country. Uh, but I think if we had to boil it down, I think many farmers here just don't feel that maybe they're seeing the market signals to drive some of these changes and to reflect a demand for this type of production. So I want to talk to you about what's happening in this space in, in the UK, perhaps in the absence of a farmer-led code, like the one that's currently under development in Canada. I understand the market has stepped in, and I was going to ask you to tell us a bit more about the UK's Red Tractor Initiative. So if you look at the history of Red Tractor, it goes back to 20 years ago when UK farming was reeling from, particularly from BSE, uh, and there was a feeling that, you know, farmers had unsafe production systems and they needed to raise their game. And we could see a lot of the big players in the food scene and the retailers starting to develop their own schemes, uh, which assurance schemes, which then they would impose on, on, on the, the grower. Uh, and so Red Tractor was an opportunity for the growers to be involved in that conversation, to have one scheme rather than the multiplicity of schemes. Um, and that was sort of felt to be a, a, a more comprehensive, fairer way, way to go about it. There are some issues here. You need to be careful. On the one hand, yes, you always need to make sure that you are catering for your market with the assurance that you're the people that buy from you want, and you must, you need to be careful not to put too much cost into your production systems to make you uncompetitive. But I, I do think that with carbon uh, and sustainability, you know, the big players in the world, the Nestle's, the Unilever's, they are going to start to make demands on farmers to have some sort of assurance when it comes to um, sustainability or it comes to carbon. And farmers would do well maybe to, to meet some of that halfway rather than waiting for the, it to be done to them, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Maybe in closing, I want to go back to the comments that you made talking about the unique position that your country is in right now post-Brexit with respect to the various negotiations that are going on for, for trade deals. And, and I would invite you to maybe identify uh, the top three opportunities that you see for UK farmers now post-Brexit. Well, you know, given um, our trade negotiators uh, value agriculture uh, in this country and don't just want to trade it away. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware that, 
you know, the UK is not a great exporter like Canada. Uh, we are primarily an importer. So I think that gives our politicians a, a different perspective, which is a bigger ask. But when I look at uh, our opportunities and I get all positive, um, I think to a certain extent you should always, as a farmer, play to your strengths. I think we have quite a benign climate uh, in the UK for cereal and oilseed production. We don't get these extremes of weather uh, that continental farmers uh, would experience more, more readily. So uh, I always think we'll have that on our side. Having said that, and I'm going to still put a adverse analysis in each time here, Erin, being a farmer, because I can always see my glasses both half empty and half full at the same time. Um, if climate change is going to make uh, our weather more unpredictable uh, and less benign, um, we've got to be clever enough to be flexible uh, and, and work with that volatility. And I think possibly Canadian farmers, because you're used to that experience of taking on what can be very challenging weather, you might be more adept at that. So I think maybe there's something for us to, to, to learn from you. But, hey, I don't suppose I'm ever going to be stepping outside into minus 30, uh, like I'm sure someone in Saskatchewan is right at this moment. I, I think the other opportunity we have as UK farmers is we're a crowded island. Uh, we have twice the population uh, that Canada does with 70 odd million people, um, and we only have a tenth of the, of the cropland. Um, so we're always going to have a lot of consumers right on our doorstep. And that's a big opportunity, especially if we can persuade those consumers that maybe they ought to try and source local, that you can lower your food miles. I'm sure that's not a message that Canadian farmers readily sign up to, and I can understand why, but you also want to play to your strengths. So I think there's a lot of sort of fairly well-off consumers right on our doorstep uh, that will always give us that opportunity. However, the downside is that there's a lot of pressure on, on land in the UK. A lot of people think it should do other things other than produce food. It should be a nature reserve or it should be somewhere for people to go and spend their leisure time or we should build houses on it or roads, etc. So I always think that we don't have the luxury of the big open spaces you have in Canada and that can work both ways. And the third thing I'd, I'd mention is, is our record on, on science and technology. Uh, as a board member of the National Institute of Agriculture Botany, we're establishing links with Cambridge University. Um, and I think in this country, we do have a good record on science and technology. And I've already spoken about how I think increasingly technology is going to become more important when we address this big challenge of feeding a world population without pressurising the planet. So I think our record on science is a good one. However, um, I think politically, um, there are a, a lot of pressures on the ability to deploy some of that technology um, without scaring people. Uh, and that's what we found with GM uh, was that, you know, people just didn't like the idea of putting it in their mouths. And uh, that's always something that we'll have to have to work on if we are going to deploy technology to its best effect. Thank you. I know um, 
some of us have spent a little more time watching TV now under the, uh, the the pandemic circumstances, and a lot of us are becoming increasingly familiar with what it is like to farm on your side of the Atlantic. Through um, Jeremy Clarkson has his new show, uh, Clarkson's Farm. I don't know if you have any perspective on that. We're all keenly awaiting the second season. It's good for a laugh, anyway. But it's it's one that I've enjoyed. Provides Jeremy Clarkson is the best farmer that Britain's ever <laughs> ever. Really, I can't, I can't say any more about it. That's the perspective you'll share with me on that. Excellent. Well, it's good for a laugh anyway. So we'll look forward to the second season of that. To what extent it provides an accurate picture of what's going on over there. I may have to come and visit you myself one day when that's in fact uh, something we can do again. But in the interim, it has been a real pleasure hosting you on our show, Guy. Erin, uh, a fireside chat with you four or 5,000 miles away uh, is, is, is a, a delight. Uh, and I hope, hey, let's all hope we can all move back to more normal times when we can go back to meeting people face-to-face and have that human contact that um, we really do need to go back to that. We need it. And we'd love to see you here. Uh, we'd love to have you come. Yeah, and, I'd and love to come. Us. I've been to Ottawa. It's a great city. I enjoyed it immensely. And I'd love to show you around my poke little patch in, uh, in southeast England. It would be great to see you on farm. Excellent. Well, I think I might take you up on that offer. So let's let's stay in touch, shall we? Let's do that. Let's do that. Excellent. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Fireside Chats with Aaron. We will be back in a few weeks' time with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with all things GGC, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>